0: Hello, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and it's one of those names where spelling it is often part of saying it. Hey, remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and, of course, the Twitter and the Instagram, and, naturally, the Facebook page, which you can find over there at facebook.com slash... ow... How good it is, Pod. Let me take a moment to talk to you about Podcast Republic, which is the app that I have on my phone for listening to podcasts. And in fact, I have been using it since before I had a podcast. I should mention I don't get any money from them. This is just my thanks for making the show one of their featured podcasts. And if you're a Podcast Republic user and you're one of the folks who have been so kind as to leave a review, thank you so much. I don't see those reviews unless I look on the website, and I just discovered a small bunch of them over the last couple of weeks. I definitely appreciate all your encouraging words. You don't have to create an account to use Podcast Republic, but if you do, you can sync your listening across different platforms. So you can go from your phone to your tablet to your desktop or whatever you like, and you can just pick up wherever you left off. And... And I really dig this feature. When you stop listening and then restart a little while later, the app has an option to back up about 15 seconds to help you get back into context. That's useful if you're an old guy like me. You can look for the link at my website, or you can find it in the Google Play Store. Today's trivia question is kind of an arcane one, so let's see how it goes for ye. What piece of weaponry developed in World War II got its name directly from the musical instrument it resembles? Got that? World War II era weapon, which gets its name from a musical instrument. What weapon was that? I guess I can also add that a variant of that weapon is still in use, but as far as I know, they don't really use that name anymore, except as a generic term. And I will have an answer for that at the end of the show. So today we're talking about Deacon Blues, the second single from uh, Steely Dan's Asia album. Now, when I was a teenager, I bought a Bunch of singles, but for some reason I didn't buy a lot of albums. Asia was probably one of the first albums I purchased with my own money and it immediately pulled me in. A part of me was kind of irritated that there were only seven songs on the album because, hey, I paid for a full album. There should be like 10 or 12 tracks here. And the other part of me was irritated that there were only seven songs because, oh my gosh, this is so good. And I poured over the lyrics and the credits on the album, and I was a little bit confused by the fact that with the exception of Donald Fagan on vocals, nobody appears on all of the tracks, not even Walter Becker. Even 14-year-old me, who was more typically immersed in pop music, could sense that this was both a strange departure from their earlier sound and a piece of genuine greatness. And I, I, I urge you, I urge you, if you have a copy, go back to it. Go back. Have a listen. Listen with earphones on, okay? Put on your headphones and listen. Just give it a real deep listen. Lyrically, the album was starting to move away from what Robert Christgau referred to as their collegiate cynicism and into a more introspective thing. And meanwhile, you know, Becker and Fagin, they were managing to merge rock and pop and jazz into this cohesive whole that we really hadn't seen before. One more thing about the album before I move into the specific song. Rumors abound that the late comic performer Phil Hartman was responsible for the album's cover. Now, while Hartman was a graphic artist before he became famous, and he is responsible for several album covers, Aja wasn't one of them. The art direction came from Oz Studios, and that minimalist cover photograph was taken by Hideki Fuji. So Deacon Blues was born in Malibu, California at Donald Fagan's house. Uh, Becker came to the house, and they were noodling around on the piano. Fagan told the Wall Street Journal that he had an idea for a chorus. If a college football team like the University of Alabama, which was a pretty powerful team at the time, could have a grandiose name like the Crimson Tide, well, nerds and losers should be entitled to a grandiose name as well. Well, around the same time, the Wake Forest University team was not doing very well for the better part of the 70s, and that team's name was the Demon Deacons. So the popular thinking was that they were comparing Alabama to Wake Forest. However, Fagan says that they got Deacon from football player Deacon Jones, who was one of those players who got a lot of attention because he had an outsized personality. Plus, it scanned nicely into the song. And of course, blues is both considered an alternative to uh, Crimson Red. Plus, it ties in well with the overall attitude of losers. Walter Becker has described the guy in the song as a triple L loser. In that same Wall Street Journal interview, he said, It's not so much about a guy who achieves his dream, but about a broken dream of a broken man living a broken life. Fagan added to this that a lot of people think that it's about a guy who ditches his suburban life to become a musician. But it's really more about the fantasy life of a suburban guy from a certain subculture who can't break out of his rut, but in the long run also isn't really willing to. It's very earnest and at the same time very sad and poignant because you just know it's not going to happen. Even the dream itself isn't especially big. Learn the saxophone so he can play whatever he wants, drink scotch whiskey, and die in a car crash. Becker calls it one of the mythic forms of loserdom to which he might aspire. And if you've lived in or near this world, you can probably think back and realize you've known this guy. For me, it was the dad of a friend of mine who had the relatively simple dream of owning a boat. Nothing especially big, just something he could go fishing in. A small boat with a motor and maybe a rudder on it. And he would give us these lessons in his living room so that we could help him navigate when he got that boat. Shoot, I haven't thought about him in a long, long time. Becker and Fagan uh, said repeatedly that their habit is to work on the words and the music at the same time, which is a departure away from many other songwriting teams. They look at the music as a single flow of thought, which allows them to kind of riff back and forth until they're both happy with the result. Now, at one point in that Wall Street Journal interview, Fagan says that the line about the expanding man may have been influenced by a 1953 science fiction novel by Alfred Bester called The Demolished Man. The both of them were science fiction fans, but the relationship of the song's character to the novel, eh, it's kind of tenuous at best. Because here's the thing. Around that same time, I read The Demolished Demolished Man. And it's about a future society where a large segment of the population has ESP, that they can read minds. And the main character in the story commits a crime, so he needs to find a way to uh, prevent others from reading his mind so they don't know that he did it, because the punishment for the crime is demolition which is the telepathic stripping away of memories and the upper layers of personality and that leaves the person open to re-education now the expanding man in the song sort of sees himself as climbing evolutionary levels and maybe seeing his options as he's ready to cross that fine line which he hasn't been able to before well we retreat back to the chorus with the whole fantasy sequence playing out again so the connection to the book is largely a matter of parallel construction of its title and not much else the song was recorded at Village Recorders in West Los Angeles. Uh, guitarist Larry Carlton took the demo tapes and transcribed them into an arrangement for the rhythm section. Carlton described the arrangement as tight, but also with enough breathing space for other parts of the song, such as the horns and the background vocals that would all come in later. Saxophonist Tom Scott wrote the horn arrangements, and he was told that they needed to have a light feel, kind of like a, a, a Duke Ellington sort of sound. When he heard the demos and the completed rhythm section, he immediately had a sense of what needed to be done, adding notes which hinted at dissonance but weren't actually dissonant. In addition, Gary Katz, uh, the producer, arranged with engineer Rudy Van Gelder for most of the instruments to be recorded very close to the microphones, giving them this intimate sound and the ability for any given instrument to just jump out a little bit when they needed it to. Once everything was assembled, Becker and Fagan listened back and realized the song needs a sax solo and they knew exactly the sound they were looking for. The problem was they didn't know who the musician was. He was the guy who played the saxophone on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson whenever they went to a commercial. So they got Gary Katz to contact NBC and ask around, and that's how they found Pete Christlieb. So one evening after The Tonight Show finished taping, Lee went over to Village Recorders to do the solo. Lee listened to what they had so far, and he recognized the chord changes as being jazzed by their nature rather than the blocky chords that pop music has so he realized he had some space to improvise a little bit and in fact Becker and Fagin told him to do just that. By all accounts he was told to play what he feels So Chris Lieb listened again and he recorded his first solo ever. They listened to the playback and they liked what they heard but they did ask him to do a second take and that's the one they used. As uh, Chris Lieb later said Next thing I know, I'm hearing myself in every airport bathroom in the world. He was in the studio and out again in about a half hour. Finally, as far as production goes, I should note that the long fade out of the record was very deliberate. Fagan says that he wanted it to feel like a dream fading off into the night. Becker once said in an online chat on America Online in 1994 that when it was finished, he wanted to hear it over and over, which is never the case for him. Deacon Blues was Steely Dan's fifth top 20 hit on the Billboard Hot 100, making it to number 19 in the spring of 1978 and spending eight weeks total on the chart. So far as I know, it didn't chart anywhere else, although the album Asia peaked at number three in the U.S. and number five in the U.K. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you to name the piece of World War II military hardware that got its name from a musical instrument. Well, in order to answer this one, we have to go back to World War I and a Marine Corps rifleman named Robert Burns, who most people called Bob. Now, Bob was a good marksman, but he was even better as a musician. And he managed to put together a Marine Corps jazz band, which played all over Europe to entertain the troops. Burns was also a comedian of sorts, and he put together an instrument mostly out of gas pipes and a whiskey funnel. Now, the way this instrument was designed, you could change the length of the pipes and therefore the pitch of the notes, sort of like a trombone, but with a much narrower range of notes because the pipes themselves were so wide. Most of the pitch changes were done by the performer himself, adjusting his lips as he buzzes into the tubes, or once in a while he would kind of attach a, a, a like a trumpet-type mouthpiece to the thing and right into it. Here is a clip of Burns playing along with singer Shirley Ross. Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling Clementine. You are lost and gone forever. Awful sorry, Clementine. When Burns joined the Marines, he built another one out of stovepipes, and he used it now and then to comic effect in the jazz band performances. Later on, he used it in comedy bits on radio and in films, so the instrument got to be kind of well-known. The instrument gets its name from the Dutch word bazuin, from which we get the English slang word bazoo, meaning boastful talk. Burns took that word and turned it into the name of his instrument the bazooka. And when in World War II, they first started developing the M1A1 rocket launcher at the Aberdeen Proving Ground, not far from here in Maryland, Major General Gladion Barnes, trying the weapon out, said, it sure looks like Bob Burns' bazooka, and the name caught on. Nowadays, people use the phrase rocket launcher to refer to most shoulder-mounted hollow tubes used for that sort of thing, but people do still use the word bazooka as a generic term. And that, my friends, is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, well, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispodcast. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is to be like a virgin. What? Okay. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.